0: Welcome. So one of the most prestigious ranks in the military is to be a first sergeant, or they affectionately call it first shirt, right? So it's the diamond in the middle, three rockers, three chevrons. Uh, it's a place of being in a company level, anywhere from 100 to 300 in a company level unit. And you're in charge of every, everything, right? And it's, it really tests your mettle, to use your phrase, mm-hmm. it tests your mettle in the context of how you lead. It's the ultimate leadership position in the military. Uh, and uh, I it was, it was just really super honored to be in that position and, and uh, one of the proud moments of my career. That's why they call you top, right? That's exactly literally what it means. You're in charge of all the personnel in that company and everything falls and rises based on the decisions that you're making in real time every single day.
1: Welcome to this week's episode of the Medal of Honor podcast with your host, Tiffany Marchink. Tiffany retired from the military after 24 years of service on active duty as well as in the Army Reserves. She served as a Religious Affairs Non-Commissioned Officer, Army Recruiter, and an Instructor for the Advanced Individual Training for Religious Affairs Specialist. Eddie Dunn is a National Thought Leader in the Veteran Transition Space, driving a unique and dynamic talent management consulting alliance focused on bridging the gap between veterans and employers. Previously, Eddie designed and led the Marsh & McLennan Company's Veteran Talent Initiative, achieving the coveted number 1 military friendly employer in the nation as recognized by GI Jobs magazine. Prior to joining Marsh & McLennan, Eddie was one of the original architects of the most successful veteran employment initiative in US history, the Veteran Jobs Mission for JP Morgan Chase. From the inception, Eddie designed and led the nationally recognized coalition of 150 private sector companies working to employ our nation's veterans. In less than three years' time, the coalition hired more than 140,000 veterans, achieving national recognition from FLOTUS Michelle Obama and Dr. Jill Biden of the Joining Forces Program. Since then, the coalition has hired over 600,000 veterans on its way to a million. As a 20-year Army veteran, Eddie served proudly in the famed 82nd Airborne Division as a young paratrooper, later joining the Army Reserves as a parachute rigger and jump master. He deployed to ground zero during 9-11 in Operation Iraqi Freedom before his retirement. Eddie received his BS in organizational management, graduating summa cum laude, from Nyack College in New York. He is the recipient of numerous awards and decorations, most notably, Glaxo Supervisor of the Year, Combat Action Badge, Army Commendation Medal, Novartis CEO Diversity Leadership Award, Dodd ESGR 7 SEALS Award and most recently, two-time recipient of the ESGR Patriot Award. Eddie also served as an elected town councilman in Vernon, New Jersey, where he currently resides with his bride of 25 years.
0: Tiffany, my name's Eddie Dunn. Uh joined the military uh at the young ripe age of 22, joined the army. I was in uh, I went in from Brooklyn, uh, Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn, New York. I was an army kid, army brat actually. So I was an army brat previously. Spent a lot of time at, in the 82nd Airborne. When I went active duty, jumped out of perfectly good airplanes. Uh went through first time active duty, 3 years in the 82nd Airborne. Uh, then went on to the army reserves and spent the rest of my career in the army reserves. So that's, uh, so I was a, logis- a logistician. Um, what does that mean actually? So some people don't know what that is. It's supply chain in the military. They called it beans and bullets, right? So anything that moved, anything that moved, you know, went from moving paratroopers, moving beans, moving bullets, anywhere we went and deployed. That's what I did the first stint. Later on in my uh, reserve career i became an army jump master and i also became a parachute rigger so they spent the last the last part of my military career working with special operations secret squirrel missions all around the world uh, did that had a lot of had a lot of fun when i got up i did 20 altogether. was downrange oaf2 right and that makes me old now i guess because that was a long time ago it seems like it was a long time well it actually was so that was down in 2004 and then uh, I retired very happily, wore the diamond on my sleeve as a first sergeant, as very proud moment in my career, very, not too many people enlisted, senior listed, wear that rank. It's a really tough rank to wear. And so very proud of that fact, but I was very happy to get out after 20. <laughs> I was done, man. So um, that's a little bit about me. So maybe another podcast, it's all about my army brat life, but I did a lot of growing up on Long Island and and I went from there. Welcome.
2: While you were in the Army, the pinnacle of your career was you functioning as a first sergeant. You are responsible for the personnel that are under you. What did you do for self-care? So it, being in a position like that, what did you do personally to take care of yourself? Because you spent twenty you're, you're, you're 24-7
0: well, it was all spiritual, mind, body, and soul type of thing. So definitely my spiritual, my faith walk definitely kept me grounded, right? So that's, you know, that, that totally kept me grounded and balanced. At the same time, the physical aspect. The, so it was a really interesting balance for me. And there were times when I was out of balance, right? So you become, in a way, you become very obsessed with taking care of your soldiers it's the only thing that really matters, right? And, and when you do that really, really well, you can become unbalanced. But I did it basically, great family, had a great foundation. My pastor, my family, my friends, my bride of 25 years who'd been with me through thick and thin, you know, those kinds of things balanced me out. But there were times when I said, you know what, I'm getting a little crispy around the edges. And, and that actually prompted me, when I say the worst of times, it was one of those situations, if you don't mind me telling the story, You know, I was at close to the 19 years, Tiffany, and I was at this place in time, and I said, and my wife always said to me, if I wasn't having fun, it's time to get out. And it was around 19, 20 year mark. And I I have to be honest, I was really crispy around the edges. And you know what I mean by that, right? It was, I I just had enough and I was not having fun at all. She says, Eddie, if you were not having fun, you always told me that I needed to tell you that. And I was getting up for a drill weekend and I was having a tough time putting the uniform on. I didn't want to go. I I wanted to be a slug and not go. But I I was I had I I had a senior enlisted rank. What was I gonna do? I had responsibilities. And then after I said to that, I said, you know what? I think it's time to get out. And six months later I got out.
2: The 82nd Airborne Division, Mm -hmm. Paratrooper, like, I think people, see, even that right there, yes. It's
0: ingrained in your DNA, man. When you're in the 82nd, you're in the 82nd.
2: Yes, and you never leave it. It's almost like once a Marine, always a Marine. Now, same thing. People even out who are not really in the military have heard of the 82nd or the 100th, but the 82nd, like, what was it like? Not just being in the 82nd, but being a paratrooper in the 82nd.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things. I wrote an article just recently about my experience uh, being a paratrooper first and foremost, going through airborne school, and then ending up in the 82nd Airborne. But it's the the history of the 82nd Airborne from before it became an airborne division, pre World War II, all the way through World War II, and all the way up to its current form and what it's in has an extraordinary history. In terms of how elite we are, in terms of our ability to get to a place quickly, and light infantry hitting the ground running, coming in low altitude, full of combat equipment, it's an air delivery of paratroopers coming in and hitting with a ferocious impact to accomplish the mission. It's, it's just one of those very rare type of units that really, in mass, when you think of how big a division is, right, and, and how they could potentially land in one particular area. It is quite extraordinary, and for my life as it was, as I mentioned earlier, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I was very proud to have served, and as you can tell, you know the 82nd Airborne. When you're an alum, you're in an exclusive group of people who have actually worn the patch, jumped out of planes. The ability to jump out of a perfectly good airplane is just one of those areas. As a civilian, it's not the same thing. When people say, "Oh, you jumped out of planes," that's exciting. And they're thinking about jumping out of the Cessnas and they're jumping at 10,000 feet. And no, you're jumping at back in the day. And this is making me old again, but uh, I've jumped as low as 800 feet. Think about that for a second. And if you're dropping 100 feet per second, think about with 80 to 100 pounds worth of equipment on your, on your body. Think about how fast you're going to the ground. That's like so. less than 10 seconds. It's less than 10 seconds and doing it at night when Uh you can't see anything. So yeah, pucker factor in the military. We call it pucker factor, right? So if you, I don't know if you remember that, but pucker factor, right? I say my wife says that to me too. She's always, she's trained (laughs) about this. Like this is Mrs. First Sergeant. She'll say to me, Mm -hmm. Eddie, what's the pucker factor on that one? I say negative 10, babe, negative 10, (laughs) you know, and she would laugh about it. And we would just sit there and go, Oh my gosh. And so it's all about conquering your fear. One of the great things that I took forward in my civilian life, Tiffany, was learning how to conquer, not only be comfortable with fear, but use fear in the right way, right? You cannot push out all fear, but you can learn to manage it. You can learn to conquer it and you can learn to leverage it. And that's what I work with my transitioning service members when I'm working on the macro level and micro level in in my pro bono coaching practice.
2: Well, speaking of transitioning service members, without fail, and these episodes that I record, difficulty in transition is an issue that I think every service member deals with. It doesn't matter if a person's been in for three years, 30 years, officer enlisted, senior rank, junior in rank, it it doesn't matter. That transition from military life to civilian life is just, it's difficult. You mentioned that your, your transition from active duty to the reserves was difficult. That yep. you were just kind of wandering around aimlessly, and you found you 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 realized you had to find uh, uh you had to just dis- work on discovering you know what your purpose and passion was. What what was that like?
0: You know, I remember very distinctly. And Now think about it this way: so I was used to working eighty hours a week, right? Eighty hours a week. You know, nonstop, you were totally engrossed in operational tempos, going and going everywhere around the world, beans and bullets, jumping out of planes, the whole nine yards, all of that to working in a warehouse back at my mother and father's house after my, and sitting there one day in in my old bedroom and thinking to myself, and I had my own little pity party going for myself, as, as sometimes that happens. And, and, I, and I said, is this all there is after everything I've done in my first active duty station? So it was really around my identity, right? So you have to remember, for your audience particular, I know you understand this, but your DNA is forever altered when you come into the military, right? It's very specific. There's a conditioning and mindset that permeates not only your mindset, but in your soul, your Your whole body changes, your mindset, the synapses, everything has changed towards one mission, one fight, and the singular focus around that. Now, how does that play coming into the civilian context? And I had the most difficult times. I was the most miserable SOV you could ever imagine because I had a sense of pride about who I was, and that was no longer there. I was a young buck sergeant. I thought I was all that in a bag of chips, right? And I was trying to do all these things. And then I had all these stupid civilians around me who didn't understand my value and what I can bring to the table. They weren't listening to me. Well, just do it this way. Do all these things and you'll get it done. Let's go. And and they will look at me. And I brought this level of intensity, Tiffany, that really intimidated a lot of people. And I had to learn to dial that back. So through this entire journey, I was set in motion. I had to go through this self-discovery of very painful events and opportunities. I, I went from job to job, and then I started going to school, which was a smart thing because that bought me some time to figure out what I wanted to do. And I, then I started my, uh, my trajectory of finding that purpose and passion in life. And I've come to this conclusion, veterans and their families are my treasure. They are my sole purpose and passion in life. I serve them, right? And my entire vocation is aligned to that. And that's all I do. That's why I got so excited to talk about it when coming onto your podcast today because I could talk about this all day because it's what I do for a minute. So that's just a snapshot of how it all started, my first active duty station. then also when you think about when I went towards my second, when I went down range as a reservist, That was another part of my transformation when you're in combat and the whole trajectory and growth that came from
2: that. The military is full of transitions because I did the same thing. I was active duty for my first nine years and went into the reserves, Mm -hmm. mobilized three different times, but on title 10 orders, three different times, even within that 24 year time period, I had so many different types of transitions I'm still having to figure out who I am
0: that's what my wife helps me
2: with sometimes Yeah, so that's all good what was it what was it that made that light bulb go on saying there's got to be more to life than this and Mm -hmm. say oh I think this is my niche I think this is my purpose this is my
0: passion no question
2: how'd you find that purpose
0: it, it's a great question so it, it takes a little bit to unfold it purpose and passion the convergence right there's a, there's a point of convergence where your purpose and your passion align to the right place right time of a vocation and you know what i i'm finding it rarefied air when people can categorically and boldly state hey listen veterans and their family are my purpose in life I treasure them every chance I get. I was an army brat from all the way from back then. I came from a biracial marriage growing up in the 70s. I went through the military. My entire, if you were to look back, it's, it's an aspect of looking back to the lineage of where you came from, all the way to the place of where you are. And I hit this crossroads and it was this. I was on my own consulting, right? I finally figured out, I said, you know what? Maybe I'm not made for corporate America. Let me try this consulting gig. But lo and behold, I came across a consultant friend of mine who said this. I said, hey, they're doing something over at J.P. Morgan. And I said, you should really check it out because he knew I was in the military. And they had this thing called the 100,000 Jobs Mission at the time. And in that 100,000 Jobs Mission, it was the debacle of the bank foreclosures that were going on in the industry. When when our soldiers were getting first deployed and the banks, without really knowing, uh, soldiers were defaulting on their mortgages so the banks were foreclosing them while they were deploying it was like the biggest black eye in the industry It took a black eye for it in jp morgan in particular but jamie diamond in his infinite wisdom he did something pretty extraordinary and he did this he says you know what we screwed that up we're going to go fix that and then he said to his coo at the time frank bizignano he said you know what can we do better than this black guy? Can we hire a hundred thousand veterans by 2020? And that was back in 2011 when this first thing, when this first thing jumped off. And, and Frank turned around and said to Jamie, yeah, we can go do that. There's an infamous cocktail napkin, a whole story. There's a kind of old folklore now. But long story short, I came six months later. They hired me on and they started a coalition of companies. To be able to to build a coalition of companies to hire veterans. Long story short, I discovered in that moment in time, that was my true purpose and passion. I hit that crossroads. I had been working and tinkering and helping veterans the whole time. Hey, Eddie, I hear you're an HR guy, can you help me with my resume? Okay, sure. And that was just a quick side hustle, help, 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 and all of a sudden, I had that aha moment. I was like, oh my gosh. This is my purpose and passion in life. And it was like a light bulb went off and I just took off. It became the most successful veteran employment program in U.S. history. I say that not to brag and blow smoke up my own backside. I don't say it for that. But I say it because when your purpose and passion converge into a vocation, the ability to take off and make a stronger impact becomes more evident as you more and more come into that alignment, right? It's all about alignment. And I knew what my identity was and I knew what my civilian destiny was, a purpose and passion. I call it civilian identity and civilian destiny, coming into that one place. It's a powerful thing to be able to think about. So when I was in that place, I said, okay, so just to give you a couple of quick numbers, a hundred and thousand veterans by 2020. We had 120,000 in less than three years time. That's the impact and has gone on to hire 780,000 documented from the time of the inception of 2011 to 2021. It's on its way to a million just to give you the veracity and the how voluminous this really is and and, an extraordinary thing. So that that's a bit of a story for me on that side. I'm in the veteran transformation business. That, that's what I do. And veterans and their families are, are my purpose and passion in life. That's all I am. It's a singularity of purpose. And, that, and that's, that. it's a very, it sounds like it's overly simplified, but when you can simplify in one sentence, that's a powerful statement. I wear multiple hats. I'm a husband, right? I have a bride of 25 years who I love, love, my best friend in the world, right? I have a close association of very close partners and friends and family. I have an inner circle of people who will always tell me the truth. That's very difficult. And uh, I like to say that my superpower is building great relationships. You know, I don't think I've ever applied for a job in my entire career. It's always been, hey, Eddie, there's something going on over here. Do you want to get involved in that? And it's because I have seeded into people over the last 20 plus years. That's what a great first sergeant does. He knows how to seed. He knows how to take care of. And, and I always call it, and there's a biblical reference to this, right? It's, it's, you know, the, the old, the biblical story around, you know, how Jesus told them to throw their net over the side and they pulled on all those fish, right? Well, in my spiritual journey, All the fish that I have helped feed over the year are jumping back into my boat. And a lot of them are saying, hey, listen, Eddie, I remember when you talked to me about this, it meant a lot to me. And oh, by the way, here's a six-figure contract going on. Would you like to get involved in this? So I've never, I always continue to build into pay it forward and love on people as much as I can, as hard as I can. right? And And knowing that I don't have to worry about what's happening next because I know it's going to come back
2: in some form or another.
0: I don't know if that makes sense, but it's just who I am and what my identity is.
2: So here's what my curiosity is. When I was in the military, I was a chaplain's assistant. Mm. And when I read part of your story, you deployed to ground zero during 9-11 as a chaplain's assistant and later mm-hmm. for Operation Iraqi Freedom. Mm -hmm. So how do you go from being a paratrooper, pararigger, 82nd Airborne to a chaplain?
0: Yeah, so there's a really interesting story around that. I'm glad you asked that. So not many people ask me about that, which is, I think is kind of interesting. So I live in New Jersey. And so when the planes hit the towers, we saw it from our house. And so uh, we can see it. And it was a horrific moment in time. My pastor was an Air Force chaplain. And I called him up immediately. He says, are you you going? And he says, absolutely. I says, can I come on as a chaplain's assistant? And he says, absolutely. So I called my reserve unit and I said, cut me orders for that right away. I'm going to ground zero with the Air Force. So they cut me orders to be able to go with them to ground zero. And we ministered and talked to and we helped relieve the cops on, uh, around the perimeter of Ground Zero, and we stayed there. Now, I stayed there for only about a week, 10 days, whatever it was, and then he stayed there for a little bit longer, right? We were on the Mercy, uh, the hospital ship, uh, Mercy, and we stayed there, and we, uh, we went back and forth, but that was where we just ministered to people. We, we gave them a bottle of water. We gave them a sandwich. You know, we prayed with people. Uh, you know, we helped people as best we can. It was, you, you did the best you could and it was a place in time in human history. We were never here before. So we were figuring our way through that. It was the, the most horrific experience I've ever had in my entire life. That trauma in the one week totally eclipsed anything in my whole time in Iraq for 10 months. Right. So it was extraordinary But it was also necessary for my growth, because I always think about it not in terms of PTSD, but I think about it in PTSG, which I think is the untold story of many transitioning service members who grow from trauma, as opposed to spiraling downward and taking their life.
2: Self-care has got to be an important part of our lives, and I don't think we do it enough like we should. Let's pivot for a moment. You are an airborne paratrooper with the 82nd Airborne Division on active duty. You are an airborne pararigger in the reserves. 9-11 happens, and you go to ground zero on orders as a chaplain assistant.
0: Well, when we were there the second night after the after the towers had come down, it was total chaos. And by the third night what all the rescue, all the rescue people, all the people down there realized that we weren't going to find any survivors. We just realized it. But we weren't saying anything about that. And the trauma of looking, and if you remember the imagery of the frames of the towers, right, those structures that were coming up, I was right in front of that. and And I stared at it for a long time and breathing in. 9-11, 9-11, ground zero, had a very distinct smell. I've never smelled ever again. Had a smell, but people don't talk about this. We knew the smell was overwhelming and we knew that there weren't going to be any survivors because we worked with the cadaver dog. We were with the cadaver dogs as they were going in and out. We were finding pieces of people. And that was very traumatizing because we didn't know what we were looking at. And we were seeing things for the first time we'd never seen before. That trauma affected me quite a bit and my health affected me quite a bit. I was glad that I left when I did because a lot of people from the lung problems they have later on, but that took a while to get over, right? And and I did. And, and, you know, with my faith, as I'd spoken about my faith journey and everything else, loving family, you know, the way I walk with God, those kinds of things, uh, balanced it all out at the end. Um, But if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't change anything because that period of time set the foundation of where I went in my career and life to where I am now. So I wouldn't trade any of that for the world. I would never want to ever put anyone in that situation to experience that kind of trauma because it is extremely overwhelming. People people don't understand it. It's not easy to describe because how do you describe it? You know, you, you just can't. Uh, but it was an extraordinary time that I have just learned to embrace as I've
2: gotten older. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot real quick. Fill in the blank. I feel most like myself when?
0: I feel most like myself when I am in situations exactly like this one. I am the most alive when I'm talking to all the Tiffany's of the world. I become very alive when I'm coaching one-on-one with a transitioning service member who is absolutely clueless on what he's doing. And what she's doing. I feel the most alive. It defines who I am each and every day. And that sounds a little bit repetitive from all my other answers, but that's when I'm most alive. That's who I am in those moments, in this conversation. I enjoy these things. I look forward to them. I'm excited about them because you get to share my purpose and passion for which God has created me to go after. And I believe where we are now in where I am in my talent practice, there is there is at we are at the precipice, Tiffany, of a tectonic generational shift. And I don't say that lightly. There is a shift going on. There's enough maturity in the transition and transformation space right now that I believe over the next 36 months, two to three to five years, the way we think of veterans, the way we help them get through their transition. And the way employers value them is going to change dramatically. And I am helping to lead that effort. And that's the other part of me. My, my, one of my key core purposes, my subject matter expertise, is designing employment programs. That's, that's part of my remit. That's part of what I do. So there's some extraordinary things, but that, that's, the, that's the way I look at it. That answers the question.
2: ESGR seven-seal award. Mm-hmm. Um, the ESGR Patriot Award mm-hmm. times two, mm-hmm. and then just this year, just a couple months ago, the Veteran Champion of the Year by GI Jobs Magazine. Mm-hmm. Like when you when you hear those awards, what goes through your head?
0: I knew you were going to ask me this question. It's not an easy thing. I, I have a, I have a number of coaches and family members. One of the biggest biggest complaints my my bride of 25 years says to me says why do you let people take credit for for what you do and i said i try my patriotism runs very quiet i do everything i possibly can to give away the credit as fast as i can to step out of the way but sometimes i'm not really good at it. and all of a sudden someone puts me in for award like for example the story behind the veteran champion of the year award by gi jobs magazine uh, was one of my former proteges and uh, someone I work with and someone I work with, I hired him and mentored him. He's gone off to be extremely successful. Phenomenal guy. Love him to pieces. He's a good brother. I love him to pieces. And then what he did is he said, Eddie, I submitted you for this war. And I said, why would you do that? He says, I knew you were going to tell, tell me not to do it. And I'm like, well, I don't do it for that. He says, I know, but I wanted to recognize you. And that's it. That's what we're doing. I'm like, well, you suck. And he said, well, you suck. And I said, okay. And I say, well, I'm probably not going to get it. I don't care. And all of a sudden I get the notification that I've been recognized for that. And then I had a business partner of mine says, Eddie, you have to put that into your collaterals and talk to people about it. And I, and I, Tiffany, I really suck at this. And I don't say that to, I'm I just, I suck at this. Right. And I, and I admit it freely because I don't do it for that, but I'm learning to embrace what I have accomplished because here's my, Here's here's where the tug of war is in my head and my heart. I know if I wave that flag, I'll attract more people so I can help more people. And it and that's what I wrestle with. The other part of me says, I don't do it for that. I keep putting points up on the board, and that's where I'm going to keep doing it. So I have this little battle in my head and my heart around that, and and I never do it for the applicants. I, I just don't do it. I do it for exactly the way you said it. I love the fact when my, something hits my inbox, I get a text or I get a phone call. Eddie, I got the job! Yay! You know, or Eddie, I never forgot that that one time you told me this. It impacted my life, and I'll tell you a story. But if, can I tell you a quick story on this? So, one of my former proteges, who is another one, I like to keep them uh, the anonymity of, of my proteges and people I've built into, simply because I, I don't, I, I need to ask permission for these things. But I had a former protege of mine who is an extremely high-speed Marine, typical neck optional, brilliant guy with the mind, which is rare, right? So he had that really good-looking guy, but he was super lost. And he was spinning his wheels, you know, bumping bumper cars. He was trying to figure stuff out. I was helping him through his career. I lost track of him about for a couple of years. And then all out of the blue... Tiffany. He says, Hey, Eddie, I'd love to talk to you again. Blah, blah, blah. And I said, Yeah, hey, how you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And he says, Hey, this is where I'm at. He invited me to a steaks and cigar place for, for a dinner. And I said, love for you to come. We got a group of guys we're hanging out with. I said, Sure, I'll come. So I walk into the restaurant. And as I'm walking into the restaurant, I have about 4050 people looking at me like I was the, the celeb of the day. And everyone in that room knew who I was and they were shaking my hand. I didn't know anybody. And then my protege comes towards me, gives me a big hug and says, would love for you to sit right next to me. And when I walked into the the dining room and where we were going to be seated, it was set up in a banquet style. We sit down and he starts toasting me in the middle of the meeting and he says, Eddie, I never forgot what you told me. He says, it's not so much networking at the higher levels, but if you network and build relationships at the peer level and go up with them and navigate that together, you'll have the most powerful network in your life. And he says, Eddie, everyone in this room is a result of what you told me in those several years. And I was completely blown away. To
2: it. Completely. Wow. That's amazing.
0: Yeah. And so I and I and I told him, I said, you sandbagged me. I says, I know you would have never come if <laughs> I had told you that ahead of time. But I'm telling you right now, all the people and he's giving back, he's mentoring his protégés. So there's a generation of that happening. And that I, I just goosebumps just thinking about it. But it was a really powerful moment.
2: What what's your golden nugget of truth? What what would you tell them?
0: I see three areas. First and foremost, most transitioning service members underestimate how hard it is to come back to civilian life. Fundamentally, they are not civilian ready on day one when they get that DD-214. Most are not. I have coached everything from two-star generals all the way down to private snuff, And invariably, there are three core patterns, and this is the advice I would give, and I would hope that they would Deeply reflect on this, right? Because it's going to show up in various forms. And it comes around your reentry. I believe that there is a pre-employment condition of reentry that has to be mastered. The words cultural reentry coming back just because you're a human being and just because you get out of the military doesn't mean your reentry is going to be all that easy. We woefully underestimate at our own peril. Sometimes it doesn't show up immediately. But 18 months down the road, you're kicking your dog, you're you're divorcing your wife, you're doing all these crazy things. And yet you didn't set the right foundation from the beginning to understand what you were going through and how to deal with it on a regular basis. So cultural reentry is one. Second one is social intelligence, or sometimes it's called, uh, you know, emotional intelligence. Well, what do I mean by that? It's the self-awareness in the context of how you behave. And who you are in the civilian context so in other words am i projecting my military values in a civilian context that doesn't necessarily fit harken all the way back to the time when i first came off active duty and i thought how stupid civilians were and how well let's just do it this way this way and this way and it's done what's wrong with you people how come you only work 40 hours a week when i work 80 what's wrong with you and it was this this touch of arrogance right and levels of intensity that I I had to learn over time. So that's the social intelligence piece. And then the third piece that I would absolutely implore that transitioning service members really deeply reflect on is that vocational alignment around purpose, passion, and the right vocation that aligns to that. And the reason why I say those three, cultural re-entry, social intelligence, vocational alignment, is because it shows up every single time. I can map almost every single conversation I've had with a transitioning service member based on those buckets right there. And that's where I dive in and help them deconstruct where they are and help them think around, well, what are you thinking about that? We overemphasize skills, you know, inter- uh, interview skills, networking skills, resumes, how to get a job. We hyperventilate over that. Eddie, can you look at my resume? I pull out my first audience and says, okay, I'll look at your resume, but I have to have permission to give you hard, straight feedback. And I end up destroying 99% of them. I end up destroying them. And and, and you know what it does for them? The psychology around destroying their resume, is because they that resume is their bolo badge, right? They take that resume and they put it on their chest and they say, you need to know everything about me. Some, someday I'll tell you about the, this command sergeant, major, Marine, who, who gave me his nine page resume and said, Eddie, everyone has to know everything there is about me because I'm all that in a bag of chips with a nine page resume. Once I told him his baby was ugly, I never heard from him again. Right? So Ooh, he don't didn't speak. want to hear that. No, but I told him the truth and I can get away with that. But that's, that's the advice I would give them those three areas. If you can deeply reflect, and begin to get the awareness around these areas and learn how to adjust, you'll be that much better off in the long run. You know, listen, this was my honor, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to share it again.
2: Thank you. Have a nice day. Have a nice day.